Hello, everyone. This is Fire Chief Paul Dow with Albuquerque Fire Rescue. Now, this podcast is designed to bring you helpful training and best practices and some additional resources that you can access from anywhere. So thank you for joining us and enjoy today's episode. Alarm to engine 11. Engine 11, respond to 1100 Louisiana Boulevard, Southeast Cross Street at Gibson. Veterans Memorial Park, Firebox 5, 8241. You have a 14-year-old male. He is conscious and breathing. Uh, fell, obvious arm deformity. Coded a 30 Alpha 1. Engine 11, Veterans Memorial Park, 1100 Louisiana Boulevard, Southeast Cross Street at Eastern, Firebox 5, 8241. Um, obvious arm deformity, 30 Alpha 1. Caller stated they will wave you down in the parking lot. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Albuquerque Fire Rescue Podcast. Today, we're talking about pain management with Dr. Pruitt. Hey, Dr. Pruitt, how are you doing today? Hi, Andrew. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great, thanks. I'm pretty excited about this one. I try, before we do these podcasts, I try to do some research. And in doing that, I was not able to find, you know, any other podcasts about pain management, you know, specific to EMS. It was more chronic pain, other things like that. So, not only are we going to be able to make our own, but it's going to be specific to our system. So that's going to be pretty cool. Yeah, I'm really glad we're talking about this. I was telling one of the fellows last week, out of all the guidelines that we released last year, pain management is the one I hands down get the most questions about. So I'm really glad we're talking about this today. All right. Well, let's start with the philosophy. So I think we are we need a little bit of a shift in our uh, philosophy, you know, in general. Um, you know, when I first came in, I remember an uh, old lady fell down and broke her hip and we we're like, oh, let's try two milligrams of morphine. And, you know, we waited like two minutes. It didn't work. And we go to move her anyways. And she's just like screaming in pain, like, ah, this hurts so bad. And so, you know, we need to we need to improve from that. Um, and now we got better medicine to give. Um, can you talk about your philosophy on pain management? Yeah, um, I think when patients call 911, clearly in their mind there's an emergency in general for the most part and whether or not we think it's a life-threatening emergency that doesn't really matter um, their perception is that it is and a lot of times they're calling for pain and so one of the best things we can do is be experts at pain management and it's really a blend of an art and a science because we have we do have so many options to choose from in terms of tools to treat pain okay so plenty of options but you know, the more you give it, the better you get at it, you know? So you need to, um, yeah, that, sh that should be a priority when you're on these scenes. Again, they, that's why they called us in the first place. So customer service wise, you know, if they call 911 because they're in severe pain, but you don't think they're deserving of your pain medicine or you don't want to, you know, fill out the paperwork and call 7-8, then uh, that's a fall on you. So I think we need a little bit of a, a shift in our philosophy here. And it doesn't always have to be narcotics. We have a lot of either oral options or intramuscular options that aren't narcotics and don't require a ton of paperwork and still, in my mind, are very effective medications. So I would encourage people not to be afraid to give medications, just understand them and how they work and use them. Yeah, it's, all, it's, it's pretty easy to be tough when you're, you're the, the one that's not in pain. I remember when I was a little kid, um, I jumped off a swing, reached my arm out, broke my arm, so my parents took me into the hospital and the whole time the entire staff you know was trying to have me go through an x-ray with a broken arm and they're just like oh you need to hold still and i'm you know a little eight-year-old like trying trying not to cry and they're manipulating my arm like crazy and um 
you know, oh, it was, I still remember it, you know, from being eight years old. So that's, that's not what the experience that we want our customers to have out there. Absolutely. Hopefully we've come away from those days. I remember those days too, but oh my goodness, I'm yeah. sorry that happened to you. Yeah. All right. So most of our calls, we're going to have, uh, probably two different categories. They're either going to be in moderate pain, like sore knee, sprain their ankle, sore throat, or they're going to be in severe pain, like you know, like my bone is sticking out of my leg right now. Um, so talking about this discussion, I'm going to frame it a little bit that way, moderate versus severe. So let's start off with the moderate pain. Uh, we've got a couple options that we can give in our system. We're going to start with Tylenol. I want you to uh, explain the physiology behind it, and then we'll get into the dosing. Okay. Tylenol. Um, Tylenol and Motrin essentially fall into the same category of anti-inflammatory medications. And when we're talking about minor or moderate pain, usually that's instigated by some sort of tissue injury, which causes inflammation. When the body senses that a tissue has been injured, it brings more blood flow to the area, which brings the cells that heal and kind of kicks off a cascade of events so that that tissue can start to repair itself. The consequence of that, though, is with the increased blood flow, it brings the swelling and the redness and the achiness and the pain um, required to fix the tissue, but it also subsequently causes an increase in pain. And the way that Tylenol and Motrin act is to kind of stop that cascade so it treats the, the swelling and the inflammatory mediators. Okay, so talking about Tylenol, again, we, uh, we're going to carry it in a pill form. Also, uh, we're able to give this to pediatric patients. We'll get to that in one second. But um, what we're going to do for the dosing is we're going to give 1,000 milligrams for moderate pain. For Tylenol, yeah, the formulation that we carry is 500 milligram tablets, and so uh, we give two of those. And I think of Tylenol more as a... Uh, my last option in my toolkit. Um, I think if we're treating moderate pain that we think is caused by inflammation, usually my go-to drug will be Motrin. Um, Tylenol acts on a very specific and narrow range of problems. It makes it very effective for fever, but it's not, It's I think of it, if you're thinking about it in terms of uh, of guns, it's less of a machine gun and more of a rifle. <laughs> okay. So, um, well, real quick then, can we talk about, uh, say, treating a kid with a fever? And this is something that I've um, grown accustomed to with the three kids. So Tylenol has been really effective treating fevers. Now, what's the dosing going to be for this, and how frequently should we give it? Um, for pediatrics, uh, the dose is 15 milligrams per kilogram, and you can give that uh, up to every eight hours. It is extremely effective for fever. We use it all the time in the hospital for our pediatric patients. And... Um, Okay. And when it comes to kids with fevers, um, we can alternate, right, between Tylenol and Motrin. So if the parents just gave Tylenol, say, two hours ago, and we show up as EMS and they still have a fever, uh, we're able to give Motrin at this point? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So just from, you know, from what I w remember just from parenting uh, with my own kids is uh, alternating Tylenol Motrin, treating that fever every two hours. Mm -hmm. Now, we're going to get into Motrin. You said this is going to be your preferred um, medicine for moderate pain? I like Motrin a whole lot. Uh, it's very effective for moderate pain that's caused by inflammation. So we talked about um, sprained ankles, um, joint pains, sore throats, anything that has 
those signs of inflammation, which would be redness, swelling, muscle aches, okay. kind of things. The problem with Motrin is that it does have some side effects. And most of those side effects happen when people have been taking it for a long time and a whole lot of it. Oh, okay. One dose usually doesn't hurt people, but there's things we really need to think about when we're considering giving Motrin. Okay. Yeah, I know in the military they used to they used to call Motrin Ranger Candy. So they'd give out these 800 milligram pills and whatever if you had sore knees from carrying a rucksack around, sore ankles. Uh, again, you know, Rangers would just pop them like candy and um, that's probably some of the long-term side effects that you're talking about, <laughs> ulcers and other things. That's true, exactly. Like they're giving you, they're giving the Rangers that medication because it's effective for that kind of pain. But when you're chronically experiencing that kind of pain and taking them all the time, uh, ibuprofen or Motrin decreases the mucosal lining in the stomach and actually increases the gastric acid secretion. So it makes people prone to ulcers when they're taking it a lot. And that can lead, you can imagine how that would be bad in a liver failure patient that already has like esophageal varices or some other thing that makes them prone to bleeding, okay. where adding an inset onto that would be even more dangerous. Um, so, you know, say we showed up to somebody with this, like a throbbing knee pain, and they said that they've already taken 1,200 milligrams of Motrin that day. Is there a certain max dose that, you know, at that time you've already had too much for the day and no more for you? Yeah, usually probably with ibuprofen about 2,400 uh, grams in a that's right in a 24-hour period so don't be taking an 800 milligram dose more than every eight hours okay all right and then let's see so we talked about uh treating the fever already now toradol is also an NSAID can you explain how that works yeah, Tordal, it basically the same mechanism of action as any other inside. It decreases that inflammatory response. I like it because it has IV and intramuscular options. So for someone who, for whatever reason, can't tolerate PO, um, it has a little bit faster onset of action as well. And I think it tends to be a little bit stronger, too, just to my personal anecdotal clinical experience. Um, it seems to be very effective. I know uh, I, I got a kidney stone a few years ago and I got 20 milligrams of morphine, didn't do any good. And then finally I got Toradol when I got to the ER and it was a life changer. So for kidney stones, especially Toradol was great. Do you have any other um, suggestions for other, you know, types of pain maybe that Toradol would, would benefit somebody? Um, one of my favorite places to use NSAIDs would be um, like a, a young person with flu-like illness it, that has really bad body aches, maybe sore throat, maybe headache, kind of that all over pain that comes with a viral illness. It's very effective against all the different symptoms from those illnesses and I like it for that. So like an example would be maybe strep throat. Again, narcotics just kind of treat the brain and trick the brain into thinking you're not hurting, but NSAIDs, Tordal, ibuprofen actually act where the pain is occurring and kind of slow down that that response. Okay. And our dose in our system is going to be 15 milligrams. Uh, how come we can't go up to 30? Um, well, that's a fantastic question. I still get that question in the hospital a lot. We decided as a system that 15 milligrams was the appropriate dose based on some recent literature. Um, Toradol, just like any other inside, can be a little bit rough on the kidneys. And 
there has been studies that show that 15 milligrams is just as effective at controlling pain but has less renal side effects. And so for us, we thought that was the safest and most effective for our patients here. Great. Yeah, that's what we need is all the benefit and none of the side effects. So right. I'm glad that you got that figured out. Okay, so that wraps up a little bit of, you know, treating the, the knee pain, the maybe chronic back pain, something like that. Now we're going to be getting into a severe pain, and I'm sure we've all been on these calls where there's no question that person is in agony and we need to treat that. Yes, that's why we have stronger options. All right. Um, so one of the things uh, that we had a mnemonic in the military. So I don't know if you guys have heard about the, the March mnemonic. It kind of took away the ABCs because in the military, you, you wouldn't want to bypass a massive hemorrhage. So they, they changed the acronym and they made it March. And that's going to treat all your life-threatening things right away. But after you get through March, uh, so massive hemorrhage, airway, respiration, circulation, and then uh, hypothermia or hypovolemia. Then after that, that's when you get into the pause part of it. So for, for us, it was pain meds, antibiotics, wound care. Um, so just a little thing to think about is if somebody's on the ground, you know, say bleeding out, in all kinds of pain, maybe they just got shot or stabbed or something crazy that happens in Albuquerque. Um, we don't want to forget some of the other immediate treatments that we need to do, right? Absolutely. That's a fantastic point. So if they're hemorrhaging, first control the hemorrhage, check your ABCs, make sure those are intact, and then treat pain. Okay. So if you get through your initial assessment and there's nothing, um, you know, airway, respirations, any of that needs to be treated, now that that pain is severe that's the most immediate problem right now um, and we need to treat that now there's times in the field that we think that maybe hospital people might not understand so there's somebody stuck in a corner just in the weirdest positions possible and it's difficult to maybe they're uh it's just really difficult to get a blood pressure get vital signs or they could be writhing in pain so much that they won't hold still for even a, a manual BP. Mm -hmm. uh, what would we do in a situation like this? Um, I'd say, well, there's a lot of ways you can tell how stable a patient is just by looking at them and talking to them. And a lot of times, if you can get to even check a radial pulse, you can tell that they've got a pretty decent blood pressure if you're feeling a radial pulse and can check a capillary refill. Um, and if you know your ABCs are intact, that's probably a patient where if your primary consideration is pain before you have to move them out of whatever precarious position that they're in, that's probably a patient you could go ahead and treat just presumptively based on your, your quick clinical assessment okay. and what you can get. In so we can of go off a of radial pulse, we can go off of LOC, we can go off of those things mm -hmm. to determine that their BP is going to be um, suitable. Yeah, and one of the advantages, I think, with our system just moving to fentanyl as opposed to morphine is that fentanyl is a lot more uh, gentle on blood pressures, where morphine and Dilaudid and some of the other narcotic options um, reliably decrease blood pressure. Um, one of the reasons I like fentanyl is it keeps your blood, it doesn't have as many effects on your blood pressure, which makes it great for our trauma patients where we might be concerned for an underlying hemorrhage. Okay. All right. So again, we're talking about severe pain. Let's get into the options. You mentioned fentanyl. That seems to be a great option. We have morphine or we had morphine. We don't carry it on our trucks anymore. Uh, what do you think about morphine? Um, 
like I said, I'm really happy we just moved to fentanyl. Um, I think it's a little faster onset. It's a little less of a dirty drug. We don't get as much hypotension with it. We don't see, I see morphine tends to make a lot more people nauseated and makes them itch as well. And fentanyl, we just don't see that with fentanyl. Okay. Um, we, I think we still kept some in our pharmacy just in case we ever have a drug shortage. But right now, I think there's no reason to move away from fentanyl. All right. So you might come across morphine once again, but if you have an option, let's go with fentanyl. So that leaves us with uh, two options. We got fentanyl and we got ketamine. Can we talk about the physiology behind fentanyl first? Yeah, so like I said, with uh, any narcotic, fentanyl, morphine, Dilaudid, whichever one, um, it basically tricks the receptors in the brain to not perceive pain. So it's not really acting on the location of pain, it's just um, tricking the brain, which in some cases that's what you need with those severe, awful traumatic cases where that patient doesn't need to think about the bone sticking out of their leg or whatever yeah. whatever's happening that's fine um all right so let's talk about uh, somebody say a, a male patient he's about 100 kilos and he's got a bone sticking out of his leg um my example earlier about starting at two milligrams of morphine well you know are we going to start at 25 uh mics of fentanyl on that patient that would not be my recommendation for him um i think usually one per kilo is a pretty safe place to start um now these aren't benign drugs that we're giving and so my philosophy when i'm giving any medication it um, especially narcotics or one that ones that have potentially dangerous side effects is to start low and go slow because some people will surprise you with how sensitive they are to medications and you can it's always you can always give more medication if you need it but once you give it you can't take it back okay um, so with a hundred kilo guy with a bone sticking out of his leg I think it's fair to start about a hundred micrograms for him all right and you mentioned fentanyl is not gonna have the hypotension associated with it what about respiratory effects are there any to worry about there? um well it is a narcotic and it can act on the respiratory center so anytime we're given narcotics it's a good idea to keep your eye on vital signs if you can and keep them on capnography um one of the most dangerous respiratory side effects we think about with fentanyl would be like if the chest chest gets tight it rarely happens but it's something to know about okay yeah just throw a capno on there it's easy um sometimes depending you know, if it's winter time or if they have a coat on, it's, it's kind of harder to monitor those respirators. But if you have them on a uh, nasal cannula, capno, you can just look on the monitor. You can see their waveform and you can you can know that you're you're not worried about the respirations at all. All right. Moving on to ketamine. Can we talk about, you know, ketamine has not been around that long. What do you know about it so far that you can tell um, us? I think it's a great drug that's kind of emerging in the literature. And um, we're using it a lot in the hospital. It's it's kind of like fentanyl in the fact that it's pretty effective for pain and it doesn't have a lot of the untoward side effects as some of the older drugs. Um, it acts on receptors in the brain that are the excitatory neurotransmitters and uh, kind of dampens those again, much like narcotics would to just trick the brain into not thinking you're hurting as bad as you are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, from what I know about ketamine, it started, uh, vets would give it, you know, they would just you give it to whatever animal they're working on, and now they can go ahead and, uh, you know, perform whatever procedure it is. It kind of um, puts them out pretty good, and, and there's many different doses you can give. So there's like a, the pain med dose all the way to the uh, sedation dose of it, and from what I understand, it's pretty hard to give 
um, too much of it, but we're going to be looking at 25 milligrams is going to be our max dose when treating pain. Mm -hmm. And I usually in the hospital, I'll give it it to an adult sized person at aliquots of about 10 milligrams at a time. Now, AFR is not carrying this medication right now since it is relatively new. It's just a special skill for Albuquerque Ambulance. But I know our people are out there seeing it in the field and need to understand how it works and what it does yeah. so that we can keep that scene safe and know what's going on with our patients right and if you're working you know which we do every day working hand in hand with AAS just know that they are carrying this ketamine and and, and using it for um, pain they also have it as like the excited delirium option yes for our agitated patients it's a great option for them to keep our crew safe but in terms of pain I think it's another great option for severe pain um, to keep in your back pocket and to understand all right so we're going to uh spend a moment just to talk about cross checks there's been a few um you know medication errors are i think you had a slide showing that it's like one of the leading um what was that slide it's about? a it's a leading cause for um complaints against that was a hospital statistic oh, but okay. error medication errors are one of the leading causes of morbidity and mortality that's preventable in the hospital and so it's just a reminder that everybody in the healthcare field just needs to be safe about which medications we're administering. Make sure we're doing it the right patient, the right route, the right medication every single time. Yeah. Yeah. And just verbalize what you're doing. It's easy. You know, don't have, you know, don't think it's a sign of weakness. Uh, first of all, we have to do it. And second of all, you know, you have other paramedics on the scene with you and you're just, or even basics if you're given, uh, say, Motrin, mm -hmm. but you're just verbalizing. That way, something doesn't sound right to anybody. That's their chance to speak up. Absolutely. So don't forget about the cross checks. Okay, so we're going to get into a couple examples and just try to see how Dr. Pruitt would deal with these patients if she were out in the field uh, on these specific calls. So we have an eight-year-old female. She was at a birthday party jumping on a trampoline. She fell off and broke her femur. It's an obvious femur fracture. When you show up, she's crying. She's still on the ground there. She's alert, um, but she's just in agony. Yeah, um, no other injuries. That's all you can see. There's no bleeding anywhere. All you can see is just that isolated uh, closed femur fracture. Okay. Um, I always consider mental status. So it sounds like she's awake and crying. And my, my first question to a bystander would be, did she hit her head or did she lose consciousness? Mm. Um, but clearly, after I established her ABCs and her level of consciousness would move to treating her pain. So children, she's already hurting. Um, it's going to take a while to start an IV. We have a much faster option for severe pain with kids that I think is just wonderful. Um, intranasal fentanyl okay. in this case would be probably my go-to. And is that, how's that compared to uh, giving it IV? Is it as effective? As effective, I would say it's actually even more immediately effective because as you stick that medication into the nose and aerosolize it, it goes right through that cribiform plate and that little tiny thin bone is the only thing standing between outside air and the brain so essentially you're sending that narcotic right exactly to where it needs to go okay so think about that on scene you're actually at this call the girl fell off the trampoline you've got all these bystanders looking at you for help and you can be fumbling around starting to you know try to get an iv on this girl that's squirming all over the place or you could give it intranasal and be the hero and you know now everybody sees that she's under control you don't have to move her with her leg mm -hmm. um unstable you don't have to try to 
you know, treat that unstable leg before her pain's under control. So um, just some advice out there in the field. Don't forget about the intranasal route. Um, yeah, I think that's a fantastic reminder, and I, I wish I saw that people were using it more. Okay, so we're going to move on. We're going to have a 35-year-old man. He got his arm stuck in a meat grinder. So you show up to the scene, and his arm is still in the meat grinder. He's screaming in pain. He's uh, standing up, uh, conscious and breathing, and actually um, you notice some blood kind of everywhere it's a it's a messy scene so what are you going to do for this patient okay if i'm expecting a prolonged extrication and i've got a obviously entrapped extremity um just like your march algorithm earlier i'm still going to want to control any massive hemorrhaging and first and with this injury even though he's awake and talking and standing i'd still be concerned despite the likely fracture in there i'd also be worried about any um, subsequent vascular injury so i probably would place a tourniquet on that extremity okay um while we're preparing to extricate and then shortly after that if his abcs are still intact i'd go ahead and treat his pain as well okay shortly after the tourniquet um yes because even he obviously is going to have something wrong with that arm but now i've just put a tourniquet on which is going to increase pain even more in that extremity. So pain control in this guy is gonna be of the utmost importance. Yeah, so we can uh, we can get in some tricky spots. I, I listened to a dispatch for somebody stuck in a tree with a broken arm or something like that. So you, you can just have any kinds of crazy scenarios. So think about actually being on that call. You might be waiting for squad two to show up because they have to do a, a rope rescue. But in the meantime, get that person's pain under control mm -hmm. and we have a lot of options we still have intranasal in him you might have time to start an IV which would be fine in the other arm but don't forget intramuscular as well okay yeah what are, what are some benefits of IM doesn't it kind of last a little bit longer I am lasts a little longer so it'll take a little while longer to absorb but the effects might last a little bit longer and uh, again just buys you some time so you can get maybe another faster route going but the quicker you can get that pain under control the better okay now, moving to my initial example. So 88-year-old female tripped and fell. She's got severe hip pain. She's, you know, alert and talking to you. And if she's not moving around, um, she's somewhat comfortable. But any thought of movement just is going to be terrible for her. So what do we want to do on this yeah. woman? So this is not a scenario where your patient has an emergent life threat, right? Like she's not forcing your hand to act here. Um, so we have time to kind of slow down and do um, make her comfortable. And so I think that would be my priority here after you've established again your ABCs and that she's generally okay except for this hip. Um, before you move around to the stretcher, I'd go ahead and um, either start an IV or do any of the other options we talked about for, for severe pain. Okay, so say we get an IV on her and we give her um, 50 micrograms of fentanyl for her pain and it brought it from a 10 to a 7. Um, you can easily consider another dose. I think that's great, the stepwise format, especially in elderly, because they are a lot more um, fragile and susceptible to medication side effects. So I think it's great that you start at 50, and then you could consider giving her another 50 more. Okay. I think it's important to establish expectations in terms of pain control. We're never going to be able to get somebody to a zero if okay. they've got an obviously broken bone. But I think getting them down to about a 4 or five is very reasonable okay so if you give one dose 
the whole point of giving that initial dose is to try to get them comfortable before you're moving the patient, you know, put a, put around the mega mover, say getting around to the gurney, that's going to be painful. A lot of movement involved with it. So if your initial dose only got her down to a seven, then like Dr. Pruitt said, there's no rush, just get that pain better managed before you go through. So my initial example, I think we gave two milligrams of morphine. We waited like a minute, it didn't work. And then we just lifted her up anyways. So that's not the kind of care we want. We want to get that under control. You know, it's not going to be at zero, like you said, but we can do better than uh, keeping it at a seven. Absolutely. Say. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. So sometimes we do have uh, other patients that probably more likely maybe uh, say we have a 35 year old female who's got abdominal pain 10 out of 10 she says but she's seems pretty calm and she's texting on her phone and you're like you sure that's 10 out of 10 like worst pain you've ever felt and she oh yeah 10 out of 10 yeah yeah um, I know we have all seen this patient probably multiple times um, this is a case where your physical exam is not indicating that she's got any life-threatening or acute injuries and this is a chronic pain for her um, I would base my treatment here on her vital signs and indi vital sign indicators of pain would be tachycardia hypertension fast heart rate um, aside from just what they look like in terms of if they're splinting or not moving or yeah, crying can't s sit still kind of right so i remember one lady we had actually uh we gave her i think 100 micrograms of fentanyl and said how'd that how'd that help you out and she's like no it's still a 10 out of 10 but you could see she was much more relaxed she was kind of actually closed her eyes because she was in severe pain and then we managed it but she still said 10 out of 10 so we gave her a little bit more um yeah. But you could see clinically that she was feeling a lot more comfortable. Yeah, that's where the art comes into pain management. Um, I would always defer and err on the side of the patient. So if they're telling you they're in pain, I think it's fair to treat their pain. Okay. Um, you can leave that up to the doctor to decide if it's real or not. Okay. However, we do have the ability to make clinical decisions. And so um, that's why we have the... the um, the mild to moderate pain options as well. We don't always have to use narcotics. Okay. All right, well, I think we covered a lot today. We got uh, some of the mild to moderate pain. Then we talked about the severe bone sticking out of your leg example. Um, do you have any closing thoughts, Dr. Pruitt? Um, no, I just hope this, I, I'm appreciative of this time to talk about this because I, I do think pain is an important concept, especially in our culture these days. And I hope that our providers aren't afraid to use it and this helps build their confidence in going out and treating pain. Great, thanks. Yeah, I think the you know the more more times you you give these medi medications, the you're able to see how well they work. You can see did you know say 50 micrograms of fentanyl work on this patient, or no, this was a much larger patient, so it took 100 uh, mics before it actually helped out. So the more you give it, the better you get at it. And uh, again, don't be afraid to do something. That is why they called us. So thank you for watching or listening, and talk to you on the next episode.